you know, since 2020 and, and retail investors are going, hey, this investing in the stock market thing is really cool. And I can do it all on my phone, you know, with this free money I'm getting in the mail. <laughs> 2021 is, you know, making money in the market so easy. I'm just going to quit my job and be a day trader. I'm going to I'm going to YouTube myself trading stocks on TikTok. Right. So that was 2021. Now, 2022 is, is uh, that that's that's over with, <laughs> you know. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another weekly market recap featuring, as usual, my very good friend, Lance Roberts. How are you doing, Lance? Well, it's Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a short seems... and, and, and it was a short week. So there's that. Okay. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the summer has just been kind of clawing to uh, to, to the Friday close. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, look, I appreciate you being with here uh, here with me at the end of the week. A um, uh, number of things to talk about. Um, let, let's start with sort of the recent action in the markets. Uh, Friday saw a notable bounce here mm -hmm. in the markets. Um, uh, what what is driving the markets? As we we have basically been in an up week here, uh, bringing us back up about to where we were about two weeks ago. So yeah. I'm sure there's some folks that are looking at this and saying, "Hey, you know, maybe this means that uh, you know we should start deploying capital again." Others probably not. Uh, so what's driving the action? What do you think? Well, a couple of things. First of all, you know, it's uh, you know, so let's let's take it from the bullish and the bearish perspective, right? So. From a bullish perspective, there's actually some pretty good things that are going on here. So markets have gotten oversold. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week. Your markets were oversold, probably due for a bounce here, getting a bit of a bounce. Now, the good thing is, is that if you kind of look at a chart of the market going back to the, the lows in July, we've actually been establishing a nice little uptrend now of lower bottoms. So we have a rising trend in the bottoms. And that's that's actually kind of a little good bullish indicator. Um, markets, again, oversold. And then on Friday, they clawed their way above the 50 and the 100 day moving average. So, you know, we'll, and, and again, you know, just, you know, they got above that intraday and, uh, you know, volume was decent and there was a kind of a, a broad rally of stocks really across the board. So that's also kind of a bullish narrative, people putting some money back to work. So it's interesting because, you know, this is something I'm writing about in this weekend's newsletter um, on the website at realinvestmentadvice.com, which is about this is the worst thing for the Fed, right? The, the Fed is trying to tighten monetary policy. The last thing they want is rallying stock prices because that eases monetary policy. They're trying to tighten it. So the more markets rally, the, which is good for consumer sentiment, um, but that's also working against what the Fed's trying to do in terms of tightening monetary policy, getting people to contract on their spending to slow inflation and slow economic growth. So it's kind of an interesting conundrum that faces the Fed. Now, on a bearish side, um, this, you know, again, not surprising we're getting a rally. And, you know, markets had had a big rally back in June and July and early August. And, we got up to the 200-day moving average, failed off of that very quickly, completed a head and shoulders pattern that goes back to November of last year. And, you know, so we're still in that bearish trend, right? And so markets are simply rallying within a bearish trend of the markets. And, and it's interesting because in, in this environment, we're all told, you know, hey, don't fight the Fed, right? So when, when we're in a bull market, and asset prices are going up, you know, you're not supposed to fight the Fed, you're just supposed to buy assets. 
well, what's interesting is, is now we're in this bear market and all the, all the market participants are trying to fight the Fed. The Fed's tightening policy, cutting rates, uh, hiking rates, cutting you know their balance sheet, doing everything they can to slow the economy, which will slow earnings, which is going to make valuations more problematic. But yet they're all in there buying stocks. And, and because no, as we talked about before, nobody wants to miss out on the bottom, right? So the Fed's going to pivot here any moment. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens. But it's kind of an interesting conundrum here about you know whether or not to deploy assets and how to deploy assets and where to deploy them. One of the big drivers on Thursday and Friday, we took a um, uh, you know we always talk about our positions you know here on the show and earlier this week we actually added to our long bond position and took a position long euro because the U.S. dollar has gotten egregiously overbought here. It's been very extended. Uh, that, that relative strength of the dollar to other currencies is impacting the economies of other countries. Uh, Japan has, has com been completely devastated here. Their currency has, has fallen sharply. The euro has fallen sharply. And so we actually took a, a to, to put a hedge in our portfolio against a potential dollar decline, we actually added a long euro position on Wednesday of this past week. And you know, and and the, just the theory is here is that if we do get a reversion in the dollar, or a weaker dollar, that should bode better for commodity stocks like energy companies. Those should do better in the, with a weaker dollar because that makes uh, energy cheaper to buy overseas. And obviously, in Europe, Europe and other places are having a a real problem with energy. Uh, but also. Uh, that weaker dollar should feed back into dollar-based assets as well. So, you know, this this kind of stock market rally isn't surprising given the weakness in the dollar on Friday. Okay, yeah, that was actually going to be my next question here. Um, and, and that may be a reason why we, we're seeing this pop on Friday is the dollar actually was down a fair amount today. And um, it's funny, I actually put out a, a tweet about this, um, uh, you know, just saying that basically everything was up today except the dollar. And um, that that probably is likely due to, you know, um, a, a pause in what the dollar is doing here, maybe not ready to call a reversal in the dollar here, but but it's probably due to the dollar pause. Your colleague, uh, Mike Leibowitz, chimed in and said, yeah, I actually think that's probably what's going on here. Um, so it looks like your trades on Wednesday were actually exceptionally well timed. Well, you know, every once in a while, a blind a blind squirrel finds a nut. So there you <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, but that's something obviously to be looking closely at here in the dynamics, which is the dollar has been kind of the big juggernaut of the year, just rolling over everything. Other currencies, yeah. like you mentioned, uh, Japanese yen, I think is something like down over 40% versus the dollar in the past year. I mean, yeah. crazy, major world yeah. currency down that much in just a year. Uh, euros at parity, pound is the lowest it's been versus the dollar in like, I don't know, since the 80s. Um, so uh, it's uh, the dollar's really been driving the action here. And certainly some reversal in that should, in the short term, at least probably release some pressure uh, in assets here. And I guess we'll just have to watch closely, right? Is this, is this just a little wiggle we're seeing before the dollar marches higher? Or is this something a little bit more... Um, more more substantial. What is kind of interesting, I couldn't help sort of smirking as you were laying out the bullish and the bearish case. Um, I'm saying this slightly tongue in cheek, but it's kind of like what you were saying two weeks ago where you're like, okay, well, the bullish argument is technical. The bearish argument is basically all the fundamentals um, plus Fed policy, plus some yeah. of the technicals too. Yeah. <laughs> and look, this is this has, you know, this is really one of those times where it is so challenging to try to manage money because, you know, and, and Mike and I were just having this very conversation this morning 
during our investment policy committee meeting, you know, saying, look, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's some indicators that we watch fairly closely, and they have a good track record of giving you kind of good entry points and exit points for markets. And one of those is the MACD um, indicator, which is the moving average convergence divergence. And, and all it does is it measures the distance between two different moving averages. So um, as they get closer or they converge, you know, it, it tells you one thing. If they're deviating from each other, diverging tells you another thing. Um, we've got some MACD indicators right now that on a weekly basis that are turning very positive. And, you know, I'm just kind of scratching my head going, you know, historically, these signals tell you that when you're getting buy signals from fairly low levels, as we are now on a weekly basis, that those are pretty good indicators to put capital to work with. But it's so hard to reconcile that against the backdrop of the Fed hiking interest rates and tightening policy and trying to create an economic slowdown. You know, the, the Jerome Powell made a very interesting comment this past week during one of his, his speeches. He said that, you know, they are try, they are shooting for below trend economic growth. So, you know, if you think about that from this is something I'm, that, again, I'm writing in the newsletter this weekend at realinvestmentadvice.com, which is that, you know, that below trend growth is below 2% growth, which, you know, pre-1990, you know, 2% growth was what we considered pre-recessionary. Now we're just right. hoping to get 2% growth, but below trend is below 2%. Now, below trend growth has implications. First of all, 2% economic growth does not even consume the increase in the population of, of the working age population. So in other words, you need 2% or more in economic growth just to absorb the new entrance in, from the, into the labor force every year through immigration, birth, aging, you know, et cetera. Below trend growth, you don't get that to happen. And below trend growth is, remember, economic growth is where earnings come from. And right now, analysts are still expecting $215 to $240 a share in earnings in 2023. How are you going to get 6 7 8% rates of economic growth when you're talking about less than 2% growth in the economy? Those two can't diverge from each other for very long because that's where earnings come from, is from economic activity. So, Below trend economic growth has real implications in terms of market valuations, earnings, and, and, and market returns over the course of the next couple of years. And, you know, it's, it's such an interesting situation we're in now. We've got these kind of positive bullish technical indicators suggesting that, that you know, markets are kind of primed here for a decent rally. Um, and yet all the fundamentals, as we said, the signal between the fundamentals, valuations, et cetera, and the Fed is telling you that you should be more in cash than not. So it's a very it's a very challenging market. Yeah, I, I, I don't envy the position that you're in right now, having to navigate client capital through this. Um, and I, I think the folks that are trying to do it on their own who watch this channel probably are, are getting a heightened value from hearing your thoughts because they're wrestling with these same things too. You know, and it's... Um, uh, I'm going to go through some data that's going to really add emphasis to the all the things that could go wrong side of the story here. Um, but, you know, as you've said as recently as the last week's video here, Lance, is, you know, there's always the old adage of the market remaining irrational longer than than you can, you know, well, then you can remain solvent or just right. than you think it should. Right. So, um, you know, I, 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 I guess I'm just saying I sympathize with you that I imagine a lot of you wants to batten down the hatches. 
but um, part of you is just saying, but I, I can't ignore the tape that's unfolding in front of me here. I've, I've got to be cognizant that it could go in a different direction for longer than I think for whatever reasons. You know, and this is this look, it's a really good point to, you know, and there's a difference, you know, you know, I listen to a lot of these guys on CNBC and whatever. And, you know, they're saying, oh, this is going to happen. Markets always go up over time. Just, you know, put your money to work, whatever. Or you got the other side of the coin as well. The world's going to end and you should be all in cash and beanie weenies. And the problem is they don't manage money. You know, it, it's easy to say stuff if you're not running a book. Right. And, and you're not managing other and particularly if you're not running your own book or potentially not managing, you know, being responsible for other people's income. It's very easy to make these kind of bombastic claims of just, oh, don't worry about it. Everything's fine over time or, you know, the world's going to end or whatever. You know, this is a very challenging environment to manage money in. And it's it's not easy for me. It's not easy for Mike. Uh, you know, it's not easy for anybody that's actually trying to put capital to work. And, you know, the problem, as we talked about before, is it's easy to be really bearish in this market right now because, you know, hey, I get it, right? You know, we, we can talk Fed, we can talk fundamentals, we can talk about, you know, the Eurozone, what's happening now with energy prices. You know, my son lives in Germany, so I've been talking to him a lot about what's happening with their electricity over there and, you know, those implications. And, you know, there's a lot of really bearish news. And, you know, it's really easy to get that very bearish sentiment, just say, man, I'm just going to be all in cash. But, you know, by the time that you realize in this market's run, you know, 15, 20% we're approaching, you know, new highs, you know, that's then you get into this trap of, well, you know, okay, fine, the, the bull market's back, I'll wait till the next correction to get in. And now you're in the trap, right? So, you know, this is why people get left out of markets for a very long period of time. So, you know, it's, it's in these environments right now that you really got to kind of separate out, you know, kind of the, the, the chaff of what a lot of people are saying that aren't actually managing money uh, because they don't have any bets at risk. And, and that's a totally different environment. When you've got money at risk, your attitude is very different about, <laughs> about, managing, about managing turns in the markets. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to read something here um, that uh, I was thinking of as you were just talking there, Lance. And it's really important, I think, for the viewers to understand this is really one of, if not the most important reason why I have you on this channel week after week is, as you say, it's one thing uh, to have an opinion on what's going on in the market. Everybody's got an opinion. And a lot of the talking heads out there don't. But many of them don't have skin in the game. You know, the difference for you is you have to back up your thoughts with capital allocation decisions, right? So you're not just having an opinion for the sake of having one. Um, there are actual real repercussions to the decisions you make and the conclusions that you draw. And this reminds me of um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, quote um, about the man in the arena. And if you don't mind, I'm, I'm going to read it sure. here for a second. Um, it, it might sound a little self-serving for you and 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 you deserve a no, pat so, on the back no, here for what you did. Yeah, self-serving is fine. I'm, I'm all good with that. I'm sure you're okay with that. But, but it really is important because th th this is why the, your opinion, I think, matters so much more than just sort of the armchair economic pundit. And here's how the quote goes. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, but because there is no, uh, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, 
who at the best knows in the end of the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Uh, it, it's a great quote. Um, I keep it in mind in a lot of aspects in life, but but in your case, Lance, you know, you're the guy in the arena when it comes to capital management for your clients, right? And so um, you're not perfect. You're going to err at times. Yeah. Not every call is going to be a perfect one. Your goal is basically to, you know, get more forward yardage than 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 reverse yardage uh, on the playing field. I think you do a pretty good job of it. Um, but I think that that you know getting a glimpse inside your brain is way more valuable for the viewers of this channel than just for the guy who writes an economic column, you know, in a magazine or, or on a TV channel, um, because you're having to actually make real decisions to navigate what's going on there and, and bear the consequences. So yeah. uh, curious if you have anything to add to that, except, Hey, no, Adam, no. thanks for patting me on the back there. Yeah. No, thanks for the pat on the back. No, no, yeah. look, it, it's, 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 you know, and the, the point I'm trying to get across is, is, you know, again, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. I'm not trying to do any. That's not the point of the conversation. But the point of the conversation is I was reading some articles on Market Watch this morning. And, you know, I, I, I read articles from everywhere. You know, probably the first hour and a half of my day, two hours of my day is just reading stuff, um, you know, gathering other people's opinions and trying to parse those into some form of logic, you know, that that I can work with. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, there's so many there's so many people that write for, you know, Market Watch, CNBC, Business Insider, you just kind of go, Wall Street Journal. All right. Um, very smart people. Nothing wrong with with their opinions or anything else. And, and, you know, they have views and their views are you know sometimes valid, sometimes not. Um, but you get a lot of these articles that are just like, well, you know, you can't time the market. So don't even try. Just, you know, keep your money invested all the time and markets are going to go up and that's not how money works. And, and we've talked about this before. If it worked that way, everybody would be rich after three major bull markets. Obviously, something is awry because that's not the case. Um, but again, you know, none of these people have money at risk. You know, they can write an article saying, hey, you know, the market's going to go to 5,000 or the market's going to go to 2,000. And if it does or doesn't, nobody holds them accountable. Right. There's there's no there's no accountability for making these opinions. Nobody comes back to them and says, oh, well, you know, you said blah, blah, blah. You know, but when you're actually managing money, you know, you have real responsibilities and there's real con to your point, there's real consequences because I have to look my clients in the eyes and say, you know, hey, sorry, that did, that didn't work out well. And, you know, I've been managing money for 35 years. I've never had to look a client and say, a client say, you know, I'm sorry, you lost 50% of your money. This is how we're going to get it back. Right. Just that is, is something that's not acceptable in terms of money management and should never be. Yeah. So um, anyways, OK, great. So um, the to me, this is sort of like, look, if you want to if you're if you really want to get insight into kind of where the game is going, let's use a football analogy here. Um, you know, who do you want to listen to? The guy who, you know, is doing the talk radio show um, and, and given his you know armchair opinion about the game or would you rather hear from Tom Brady? Right. It's like, you know what, Tom Brady's probably got the much more, you know, accurate, practical boots on the ground sense of what's going to go on. So anyways. Now, now be careful with the talk radio show thing, because I do a talk radio show every day. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who want, who should listen to those guys? Right? Uh, don't don't listen to my YouTube channel. It's all crap. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, people should listen to YouTube. I mean, radio. Forget about that. Yeah, now, exactly. um, all right. So after after building you up there um, real quick. 
Um, sure. I, I do just want to note here, um, we had a misspeak last week when you and I were talking about student loans. Um, uh, we, I think you you briefly made the comment that uh, you didn't think they were, you thought they were still earning interest during the, the payment moratorium. Uh, they actually are not earning no. interest. It's a zero percent. Yeah. Um, so just to, just to recap real quick, what I said was is that the ten thousand dollars that people were getting forgiven wouldn't cover the interest accrual. But uh, to your point, and, and what I meant was is that for many of these student loans, they've got so much interest accrued on them because they have been making payments that it's not even going to get them caught up. But right, that ten grand won't even go into the principal. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But um, you know, the way it came across was is that there's been accrual on the interest and that's not the case. It's been at zero, but that ends in December. And, you know, we'll see how it goes from there, but, you know, we're getting to, there was some interesting analysis about, student. I don't want to get off on this track again, but there was some really interesting analysis about the consequences of this forgiveness. If it goes through this, you know, the big question is, is legality of all this, right? So this still hasn't right. been challenged on the, on the legal side. Um, Post midterms, if, you know, you see Republicans gain control of the House and the Senate, I fully suspect that they're going to challenge this student loan payment forgiveness. But if they don't, and they let it sit, there's some real ramifications longer term because it changes the principal payment to 5% of disposable income. Now, 5% of disposable income is far different than the 5% interest rate that accrues on a lot of these um, loans. Also, after 10 years, if you pay on it for 10 years, they'll be forgiven. So 5% of disposable income will never pay for those loans in 10 years. So this is all going to be a major give back to the taxpayer who's got to pay off these student loans that will never be paid for by the students that took them out. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this comes out. But you're talking about and something we mentioned last week is that this could wind up costing taxpayers close to a trillion dollars by the time it's all said and done. Yeah, uh, I mean, as you said, Lance, they're calculating this could be much more costly to taxpayers than has initially been sold uh, by the administration. Um, I've been reading articles, actually, a fair amount over the past 48 hours of sort of the mounting legal investigation or exploration that's, you know, mounting here about, uh, you know, challenging this thing. Um yeah, we could get derailed on this a lot. So let's let's just leave it as is. We'll we'll come back and revisit if need be. Um, I just wanted to make sure that folks realize that hey, you know, we we certainly if we misspeak or say something that we don't intend to or say something that turns out not to be correct, we will do our best to factually you know correct that when it's brought to our attention. Um, we do all our, right, we do, we do our own fact checking here. So yeah. <laughs> all right. So as I mentioned, um, I got a lot of data to go through here. Um, much of it actually pulled from a number of recent um, articles done by you and your organization, Lance. Um, I, uh, let me just kind of bang through them. Um, first, let's, let's talk about recession. Um, you know, the economy um, still seems to be slowing in a lot of different areas. We'll talk about the GDP now forecast in a second. Um, but I, I want to put up a, a, a chart here that, uh, that you uh, talked to in one of your recent pieces. It's the chart of economic, uh, the economic output composite index. Yep. Here's what you had to say. You said, given the Fed manages monetary policy in the rearview mirror, more real-time economic data suggests the economy is rapidly moving from economic slowdown toward recession. The signals are becoming more apparent as shown by the six-month rate of change of the leading economic index. So can you just sort of just explain this chart for us and, and, and yeah. why you think it's so important? 
so so two things there there's two there's two charts in this one chart so one is the six month rate of change of the leading economic index so that's the one they report you know every month and they say the leading economic index was up or down whatever it was um that's a composite of leading indicators now that includes the s p 500 and includes the 10-year treasury rate and some uh consumer credit numbers etc so that's what the and, and what that's trying to, to gauge is is trying to make a forward forecast about the, the economy in the future. So it's a very important indicator. And the six-month rate of change has a of that indicator has an almost perfect leading correlation to recessions over time. So it's a very, very important indicator. Yeah, you can uh, see here when it when it drops from above through that that midline you've drawn out there in the dotted yeah. dashed line, um, pretty much every time it does that, we go into recession. That's correct. Now, the economic composite index is an index that we build, and it contains a huge variety of indicators, both lagging and leading. It has uh, the ISM manufacturing index, the ISM servicing in, uh, services index that we blend into a composite index, it has the Chicago Fed National Activity Index, which is 85 components all by itself um, about economic activity. And, it, and, and that's a, a, an indicator that is very often overlooked by the mainstream media but very important because it too has a very high correlation to economic activity. Um, but that index also includes all the Fed regional manufacturing surveys, the leading economic indexes in there, the OECD leading and, leading and lagging economic indexes, employment numbers, et cetera. So this is a very, very broad economic data composite of what's happening real time in the economy. And it has a very high correlation to again, like the, and you'll see the, the the closeness of the correlation between the LEI and the economic composite, that they both lead indicators of recessions on a very real time basis, and both those indicators are telling you that we're probably going to be in a recession within the next three to six months. Okay, yeah. You know, looking at the chart, I think I maybe misspoke a little bit earlier. There are a few cases where it did dip below uh, yeah. the you know, whatever that mean line is there. Um, and we didn't have a recession, but it's because they, they bounced back out pretty quickly. That's correct. Um, so now that it's punched below, I guess we got to watch closely here to see whether it recovers or whether it keeps diving, right? But but basically this is flashing warning signals on your dashboard that says, hey, we're now in that negative territory and the odds of recession are, are now a lot higher. Yeah, and there's also a couple of other things. So in the couple of times that it, it so, when it dips below that recession line, which is that dashed horizontal line, that's the kind of the recession warning line, right? So when you get below that, that's kind of warning of a recession. Now, the one thing, you know, that kind of differentiates periods where you dip below the line but didn't go into a recession is that you didn't have an inverted yield curve. And for instance, back in 2012, you dip below that line and then recovered. We had a manufacturing recession. We didn't have an economic recession, but we didn't have an inverted yield curve. So, you know, we now have an inverted yield curve. 50% of our yield curves that we track are inverted. That also typically leads a recession. Now, as we talked about before with yield curve inversions, it's not the inversion of the yield curve that matters. It's when they uninvert that tells you you're actually in the recession because this is money now leaving the short end to go to the long end of the curve. And that uninversion is says, okay, hey, now I'm screaming recession. Now, after that occurs, that's when the National Bureau of Economic Research will come back and say, oh yeah, you're in a recession. Um, but that's why quarter one and quarter two, despite the fact we had negative economic growth, 
we're not actually in a recession because we never uninverted those yield curves. So, you know, there's going to, and we never really have 50% of our yield curves inverted. So there's a lot of reasons to suspect that quarter one, quarter two won't be declared a recession. It'll just be a slowdown. But potentially the way things are stacking up right now, when we look at the economic composite index, the leading economic indicator index, the inverted yield curve, the, the inverted yield curves, um, a variety of other issues, they're all suggesting that probably third, you know, probably late first quarter, second quarter of next year, we'll probably be talking about a recession. And, and again, there's some some things to 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 be watching, and that's going to be a, a pickup in unemployment. If that begins to occur over the next few months, that's going to be another indicator that kind of falls in the bucket. Watch jobless claims. If those start to tick up, that's going to be another indicator, you know, kind of another indicator in the bucket. And, and so there's going to be a lot of these things that start to kind of compound over the next few months that'll that give us much better indication about where the economy is, you know, uh, tracking to. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, with jobs data, the only thing I want to say there, because we've talked about it a lot in the past, but like that data has got nowhere to go, but down. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, you and I are still having trouble believing, yeah. you know, the, the, the payrolls data um, and every other data point that we seem to look at seems to put that data set into even more uh, suspicion. Um, But anyways, to your point, if we indeed start seeing the the corrections and those numbers, we think that's going to drag these things down even more. So I don't think that's that's an if, Adam, I think that's a win. Yeah, well, you always accuse me of being too bearish. So I'm trying to (laughs) pull my punches here. Um, All right. So, you know, again, on recession, um, we had the whole you know, public debate on what is a recession and, and you know, the, 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 the previous technical def- definition of a technical recession of two contracting quarters. Some people are refuting that, whatever. Um, so looking at Q3 right now, uh, Atlanta Fed GDP numbers, they've been ping-ponging all around so far yeah. this quarter. Mostly, may I add, when they're driven upwards, they're driven upwards by, by official jobs data, right? <laughs> by the actual data set that we don't think mirrors reality here. Um, but that's now corrected down again. So right now, um, here we are in what, uh, you know, beginning of the last month of the quarter, um, it is showing uh, 1.3%, which is kind of right around where the blue chip consensus is. Mm-hmm. Um, who knows? We still may get, get a positive quarter here. Um, I will say, though, just looking at the past several quarters, um, the GDP number does more often than not tend to trend down in the last month um, than than not. So we'll see what happens here. But 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 the trend still is down right now, and yeah. we'll, we'll keep looking at this week after week. Yeah, no, and, and that that's right. And look, and, and like, as I said before, you know, if we get a positive number of GDP in the in third quarter, you know, half percent, one percent, whatever it is, that's not going to be surprising. You have back to school shopping. You have you have pent up demand from the first couple of quarters. So you know you know you're just going to get these kind of you know nothing goes. You know we, we talked about last week on the radio show that you know because I do that talk radio show thing that you were just bashing a minute ago. Um, so, <laughs> but on the radio show last week we were talking about the fact you know you know when you look at data. Let's take a good example of of, of you know this is because you'll see a lot of you know kind of the media, they'll talk about, oh, you know, ISM ticked up last week, right? So it bounced. And that means that, you know, things are getting better. Not really. 
take a look at the trend of the data. The trend of the data is clearly negative. So you take a look at ISM manufacturing services, whatever. Yeah, they may not be in contraction mode yet, but they are heading in that direction. The trend is clearly negative. And, you know, we were talking about on the radio show that if, you, if you're staying on top of a hill and you throw a ball, you know, the ball is going to bounce as it goes down the hill, right? And so right. that's all the data is doing is that you're going to get these ebbs and flows in data you know, things are, things are pretty negative. People are contracting and then basically they've got to buy something, right? I mean, they've got to buy some food, gas, groceries, whatever it is. And so you're going to get these little spurts of economic activity, you know, inventories get drawn down. So I've got to restock some inventory. I just don't restock as much, right? I don't go buy a whole bunch of new TVs. I just buy five or 10, just enough to kind of meet my demand or expected demand. But those little, those little surges of activity create these little bounces in the data watch the trend of the data. The trend of the data is more important than the number itself, right? Yeah, so don't great, just go wrap up the number, watch the trend. Yeah, and, and this kind of goes back also to just sort of our general advice of don't get too wrapped around the axles of the daily headlines or the daily yeah. tape, because um, they'll they'll pull you in all sorts of different directions. Um, just really keep your eye on the trends. Um, all right, but anyway, so point number one, we still seem to be on a recessionary trajectory here. Um, Okay, well, uh, this number really got me. Um, in the first half of this year, um, actually, I take this back, in Q2, just in Q2 alone of this year, 23 trillion of global net worth vaporized in the stock and the bond market. Now, that's when we had the, the majority of the, the losses in the markets, but that is a staggering number. 23 trillion. I mean, it's basically, you know, pretty much the vast majority of, of all the stimulus that was printed around the world. Um, yeah. That that wealth effect, you know, gone in Q2. Um, in the U.S. specifically, U.S. households lost uh, a little over 6 trillion. Uh, it's the most ever, most wealth ever lost in a single quarter, right? So that's, that's got a bite, right? So we've saw, you know, we, we, we saw asset prices come down. Um, we've seen a slowdown in the economy, so we can tell that people are beginning to, you know, tighten their belts a little bit. Um, this was the second consecutive quarter of net wealth loss, so we lost wealth as well in Q1, just not nearly as much. It was like 147 billion compared to six trillion, right? Yeah. Uh, but the big issue is, is that um, big injury, and to a certain extent, I think like Fed policy, as we've talked about, there's a there's a delay on Fed policy. I think when you injure the consumer like that. You know, there's a period of time before the consumer, you know, realizes like, "Ow, that really hurt," and therefore, <laughs> I'm not going to use this arm as much, right? Like, you're going to. I think we're still going to see some impact of that wealth loss that we had there. Now, obviously, Q Q3 is is you know what, what we're finding out right now whether we're going to see continued net worth loss or not. But um, just having taken that much wealth off the table, there's just less less wealth to do stuff with. There's a, there's a negative wealth effect going on here. Um, and then we are now just now, you know, Fed's continuing out there hiking. They, they've, they've basically just said they're going to do a 75 basis point uh, hike the next time around. That's what the markets now seem to be expecting. Odds for that have gone way up. Um, but QT is about to hit in full force, yeah. that $95 billion of taken liquidity out of the system here. So um, I, I've seen you sort of reacting as I've been saying all this land, so I'll let you talk now. But I mean, big, massive net worth um, injury, and then QT and additional rate hikes going forward. What impacts that is that going to have, do you think? Um, well, so every Wednesday, my partner, Michael Leibowitz, produces an article. And, and 
this is real timely. So, you know, if you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, next Wednesday, we've got an article coming out that Mike is going through kind of the different things that affect the markets, you know, kind of the time. So talking about, you know, monetary tightening, quantitative tightening and, you know, hiking interest rates and inflation and how does that all impact markets and valuations and, and things like that. Um, you know, clearly there's a, a very strong correlation between monetary interventions and monetary extractions and performance of the market. So that, that should really come as no surprise. So, you know, what the Fed is doing is intentionally designed to do that. And, and that's what I was saying earlier is that really the last thing the Fed wants right now is surging stock markets because they're trying to tighten monetary policy. And a rising stock market is actually accommodative to monetary policy. It's an actual easing of monetary policy. And what the Fed needs is it needs to be tighter so consumers are, are more constricted and they spend less. That's the whole goal of what they're trying to achieve. So it's interesting here because, you know, if you take a look at, so to your point, $6 trillion lost in, you know, the second quarter, that's a trillion dollars more than what the government sent to households because we spent $5 trillion during the, all the bailouts, right? So the fiscal stimulus, yes. Yeah, the fiscal stimulus. So with all that's, you know, everybody's talking about, oh, I got free money. No, you had to pay it back. And you paid it back with interest, by the way, which is about 20% if I'm doing my math right. So, you know, you know, it, it, that's not cheap money by any stretch of the imagination. But more importantly, there was some interesting analysis out earlier this week. Retail investors have pretty much kind of given up on the markets and, you know, kind of not surprising. And, and I, I wrote a tweet earlier in the week. I said, you know, 2020, you know, I said it's 2020 and, and retail investors are going, hey, this investing in the stock market thing is really cool. And I can do it all on my phone, you know, with this free money I'm getting in the mail. <laughs> 2021 is, you know, making money in the market so easy. I'm just going to quit my job and be a day trader. I'm going to, I'm going to YouTube myself trading stocks on TikTok, right? So that was 2021. Now 2022 is, is ah, that that's that's over with, you know. And and retail investors are just kind of giving up on it. And you know that's not a surprising turn of events. Whenever we've seen this in the past, back in 1999, uh, most people don't remember this, but. We were opening up entire, you know, people were renting out buildings and turning entire floors of high rises into day trading shops where people would come in and just rent a computer and day trade all day long. And 1999, 2000, right? Um, that blew up badly and, you know, turned out not to, to work well for a lot of people. So, but that's just the way these things always evolve. We saw in 2007, 2008 with house flipping, right? So a lot of people lose a lot of wealth and, and housing. And now we've kind of got a bubble of everything, right? We've got the housing bubble, we've got the, the, the bond bubble, we've got the stock bubble, and everybody's in this up to their neck. And you know how this eventually works out is, is we're going to lose a lot more wealth first. And, and you're going to wipe out a lot of this wealth creation that was done over the last couple of years. And we're, and we're starting that process. But I have a sneaky suspicion we've still got a ways to go once we get into next year. They were early. Yeah, uh, it's funny, just as you were sort of listing all the excesses. I just heard a term uh, for the first time the other day, which was car flipping. Yeah. Which I'm surprised we didn't hear about that more last year when prices were really getting bananas. But yeah, you know, because car prices got so crazy, there were people that were flipping cars the way that folks used to flip houses, right? Um, okay, so um, so here's where I'm going with this. Um, first off, you mentioned Mike Leibowitz there. Um, I'm going to put up a, a quick chart of his, which shows um, a, you know, the direct relationship between um, uh, asset valuations and the U.S. ten-year, right? Well, that's mine. 
Oh, okay. Well, I saw it in his report, um, but oh, okay. okay, great. So we have the author of the chart here. Um, so the, the the point being, though, um, essentially, as um, yields on the U.S. ten-year go up, uh, you know, cape valuations of of stocks go down, right? right. Um, kind of a time-honored relationship. Uh, you know, you think think it through; it makes total sense. And, and just to your point, the, the the Fed is doing all it can right now to get the U.S. 10-year rate higher, yep. right? So the Fed is there literally pulling down, you know, it, it, it's put a lasso around the market balloon and it's trying to bring it down here. And this chart shows that, hey, you know, <laughs> when that 10-year rate goes up, valuations come down, right? Um, so we have that going on here, which I think just sort of lends, you know, credence to what you're saying there, Lance, which is uh, there's, there's more wealth to come out of the system. And, you know, we probably have a lot of innings ahead of us still here. Um, you talked about consumers really losing confidence um, in, in stocks right now. Um, I want to talk about the confidence of uh, kind of the industrial side, uh, the commercial side of the, the ledger here, because you, in your one of your latest reports, put up a number of interesting charts. The first one I'm going to put up here is the CEO confidence survey. So we've been tracking the University of Michigan survey on this channel in the past. Um, while it bounced relatively recently, it bounced off like its lowest reading in, in the data series. So yeah. it's still very much kind of in the toilet. Um, CEO confidence, not doing so great either. Um, you know, it was, was going bananas at the end of last year, um, highest ever. Um, and that's what, you know, goosing the economy uh, with, uh, you know, trillions and trillions of both monetary and fiscal stimulus will get you. But the reversal has been tremendous. Um, and, and we're now getting down in the territories that we usually only see in recession. So yeah. feel free to well, comment. You know, it, you know, it's interesting, too, because if you talk about U University of Michigan consumer sentiment, right, that one's very negative. But if you look at the conference board measure um, in that same article, I actually have two measures of CEO confidence. I have, so I have the, the one measure of CEO confidence versus the S&P. The other one was CEO confidence versus our consumer confidence composite index, which is the combination of both the University of Michigan and the conference board. And the interesting part is, is the conference board sentiment indicator is not nearly as negative as University of Michigan. So the reason we run kind of a composite is just kind of average out the two to kind of get maybe a, a little better read on the overall economy. But here's the important part about this. The CEO confidence survey tracks the, the consumer confidence survey. Actually, I should say that backwards. The consumer confidence survey tracks the CEO confidence index. And there's a lag between the two. And the reason there's a lag is, is that as CEO confidence gets worse and worse, CEOs start saying, okay, well, look, the economy's slowing down, sales aren't nearly as good. If you take a look at the NFIB and, uh, you know, survey, their outlook for the economy over the next six months is at the lowest level ever on record. And that suggests that, you know, if I'm, if I'm bearish about the economy, in the next six months, what am I not going to do? I'm, I'm not going to raise wages. I'm not going to hire people. And I'm not going to do capital expenditures, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm now in conservation mode. I want to make sure protect my capital, keep my profits going as best I can, keep my cash in the bank. And, and so the reason there's a lag between consumer confidence and CEO confidence is that CEOs aren't yet to the point to where they're starting to fire people. So right now, CEOs are going, hey, I'm going to I'm going to have a hiring freeze. And we're hearing about this a lot from companies. You and I have talked about this before, you know, Snap, Google, uh, Facebook, others. Google just as just this past week 
um, at the code conference, Google was talking about they're going, you know, they're totally revamping how they're hiring people, slowing the pace of hiring, making sure the workers are more productive, getting more out of their workers. So you're starting to see CEOs really pay attention here. Because once I hire people, as we've said before, I don't want to fire them because good employees are hard to come by. But there is a point to where CEOs go, you know what, I got to fire people. So see, the reason consumer confidence hasn't caught up to CEO confidence yet is because they haven't been fired yet. Once that occurs and we see those unemployment numbers go up, consumer confidence will come down sharply. Okay, so we've got uh, that for consumer confidence. We've got the CEO confidence. Um, You then also talked about just sort of, you know, uh, other players in the commercial space. Um, I've got a chart here from the, um, you'll tell me what this acronym stands for, but the NFIB Small Business Confidence Index. Yeah, Uh, And we're seeing a very similar thing where, you know, their level of confidence is already down kind of, getting close to the depths of where we were in the the great the, the yeah. global financial crisis back in 0809. Yeah, so the National Federation of Independent Business, this is a Thanks. this is a this is a group that is comprised of small to medium-sized businesses around the country. So now a lot of people kind of dismiss the NFIB survey and they really shouldn't. Small businesses make up roughly about 70% of all the businesses in the country. You know, when you talk about Apple, Google, those guys, that's less than 10,000 companies out of 6 million businesses around the country. Right. And sorry to interrupt, but it's also equally about the same share of the jobs that are out there, right? Very much so. And that's what I was about to say is that they make up a big chunk of hiring in, in in the U.S. economy. So what small businesses are telling you is much more important to the overall economy than a lot of people give it credit for. And so I've been writing a series of articles in 2019, those same signals were coming off suggesting a recession. I wrote an article in October of 2019. Now remember, this is where the Fed is now doing a backdoor bailout through reverse repo of hedge funds. Nobody was expecting a recession. And I wrote an article saying, look, you know, the NFIB is telling you a recession's coming within the next six months. That was in October. So, you know, here we are in March. Then we have the shutdown of the economy. We're in a recession and everybody goes, oh, it was the pandemic that caused it. Yeah, the pandemic was the trigger that caused the recession. But the recession was already coming. It's just it hadn't matured yet. And what it needed was a trigger event. Right. The deteriorating yeah. conditions were there. Yeah. yeah. So you know, it's, it's kind of like thinking about this. You know, if the economy was really booming strongly, in February of 2020, I mean, we're firing on all cylinders, right? We're running 4% economic growth. I mean, we're, we just, we got things just booming, right? And this pandemic hits. And even if we did shut down the economy, yeah, we would have had a recession probably because you shut down the economy, but it probably wouldn't have been near as bad, right? Because the economy really was strong, but we went into that. The economy already had a sickness and then when you hit it with a shutdown, it just really exposed it all at one time. And, and that's what the NFIB is telling you again, is that the economy is sick here and don't know what it is, right? Don't know what will cause it, but some exogenous event is going to cause the economy to trip and fall on its face. And, and, and it could be, you know, it's not going to be another virus. It's not going to be another pandemic. You know, we're not going to shut down the economy again, probably not going to shut down the economy again, but you know, look, this whole thing with energy prices overseas, you know, if that circulates back to the U.S. Uh, eventually, I mean, you have a huge spike in energy prices here that really devastates consumer spending. 
and I'm just making stuff up right now because, you know, the point is, you know, a, a war with Taiwan breaks out. You know, it could be anything, but the, the issue is, is that it's always something that's unexpected. The market's pricing in Fed rate hikes, the market's pricing in tightening balance sheets, the market's trying to price in, you know, economic weakness. The market's trying to do, you know, price in what it already knows about what it, the thing that gets the market every single time, right, is something unexpected. You know, go back to 2008. The economy was in a recession. We were slowing down. We're in a bear market. You know, we would have grinded down further in 2008, but that 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 Lehman moment, right? Nobody was expecting them to, to shut, you know, basically bankrupt Lehman and freeze credit markets. But that was that exogenous event that just blew open that already weak base in the markets and the economy. That's the risk we run. You know, right now, everything, you know, markets are kind of hanging in there. Everything is okay. And as long as we don't have some exogenous, you know, credit-related event, you know, markets will probably try to hang in there. But you get some type of credit, you know, you blow out credit spreads on junk bonds or you have major defaults, et cetera, you know, that's going to be a problem for the markets. And right now, you've got 24% of the small cap companies. So you look at the Russell 2000. 24% of those companies are what we call zombie companies. They're they're basically living on cheap debt and interest rates are going up, which means debt's not cheap. And it's so cheap it, and when they have to when they have to refinance, if there's a refinancing problem, that's a risk to the markets that we're not really paying much attention to. Okay. Uh, that's perfect segue into my next bullet on the list here, um, yeah. which is exactly what you're just talking about there. Real quick, I just want to throw up one more chart that supplements what we're saying here. We don't have to talk too much about it, but this is, uh, I think, from the same survey, uh, but it's the percent of firms expecting economic improvement in the next six months. This thing has just nosedived in a way that uh, we don't see in the data series here, which goes Never. back to the mid 80s, right? So Never. these guys are more nervous, or at least they're more pessimistic than they've ever been in this data series. Right, and, and what does that mean, right? If, if I'm pessimistic about the economy, what am I not doing? I'm not spending right. you're not, money. You're not spending, you're not investing, you're just hunkering down. Right, yeah. right. and, and uh, again, look, and, and look, to the point, that's, that's, you know, it's kind of that whole cycle. Um, you know, if I'm bearish about the economy and I stop spending, well, I stop spending, that takes money out of the economy, which causes the economy to slow down, which it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And and that's and that's the risk that we run. This is the risk with Fed policy, right? Fed's yeah. hiking interest rates to slow this consumption, and that's a six to nine month lag in the economy. So all this is going to show up next year. So and that that's you're now touching on the rant I want to do after we talk <laughs> about the next couple of things. And by the way, folks, too, I'm going to ask Lance in just a moment um, what trades his firm has made this week. So I haven't forgotten about that. Okay. Um, <clears throat> all right, so. Um, uh, you talked about, okay, you know, this all kind of continu can continue along until there's some sort of threat to the credit markets, right? Um, my question for you before you made that comment was, are we seeing any warning signs of instability yet? You know, the Fed has said, hey, we're taking, we're highly likely to take uh, the Fed funds rates up another 75 basis points at the next meeting. That would bring it above 3%. It's been a long time since it's been above that. Um, you just talked about the zombie companies and you mentioned the junk bond market. The junk junk bond debt usually is floating debt. It's not fixed mm -hmm. debt. So as uh, rates go up, uh, junk high yield debt adjusts with that. Um, so uh, 
critically, we need to be looking for signs of, of cracks and fissures in the credit market. Um, now that it looks like we're on our way above three for the Fed funds rate, are you seeing anything yet that's got your attention? No. So if you take a look at the, for instance, the uh, St. Louis, you know, kind of financial stress index, right? You know, it's not showing you, it's still below zero, right? I mean, it's just, it's not showing a lot of financial stress. If you take a look at uh, investment grade versus high yield junk bond spreads, they've come up a bit, but they're not anywhere near levels that are sending off alarm bells that you've, you've got problems. You know, and, it's, and, and again, this kind of goes back to, you know, what we're talking about earlier is that there is no financial stress in the markets. And what I mean by that is, is that when, you know, the Fed's trying to tighten monetary policy and they're trying to tighten monetary policy to, to make things more expensive so that people consume less. Well, by doing that, you should start seeing some you should start seeing some financial conditions starting to tighten, and and, we're, and and they've tightened a little bit, but not nearly as much as you would expect, given seventy five basis point increases. Um, you know, and again, you're not seeing any big kind of you're not seeing bond spreads really blow out. There doesn't seem to be any real concern in in, in the high yield junk bond markets, and and that's all good, right? And because the one thing here that you know, so, sorry to interrupt. I, I think you're probably largely right. Let, let, let's say, though, that junk bond yields, the spread is much bigger than it was a year ago. Right? It is. Yeah. And it is. So, it has yeah. come up. Yeah. But it's it has, but again, it's it's come up some, which you would expect with financial tightening, but it's not really gotten to a level that's suggesting that, that monetary conditions are really starting to tighten up. Right. right. It's kind of stabilized at this higher yeah. level. It's not racing off like we would expect to see when the next problem hits. Yeah. Yeah. So and, I just and want to let folks know that that we are at a different baseline than we were a year ago with, with some of these indicators. Yeah, we were at record lows. Now we're just yeah. not at record lows anymore. Yeah. But we're not, but again, it's just, you know, we're not in the we're not even in the warning zone to where it's like, you know, hey, we need to really be, you know, aware here. Now the one thing that to say about all this is is that the Fed's watching this stuff too. So don't think that we're just the only ones watching this. And you know, while the Fed talks a really good game about, oh, we're we're in this game for the long run to bring down inflation to two percent. So you know, we're just going to keep hiking rates until you know we we get inflation back down to two. They're going to hike inflation until they break something. And as soon as their financial instability shows up, that's going to be their only focus. Right. Because you know, inflation is one thing. Financial instability it will wreck the economy and and wreck it fast. And that's the one thing that they're not going to allow to happen. So. You know, that's why we kind of watch these credit spreads. We watch things, you know, like financial stress, because that's going to be your warning sign for a couple of things. One, if you start getting a big spike in financial stress, um, markets are going to be declining pretty quickly. Again, this rally in the markets that we had this week, it's alleviating stress, right? This is this is making monetary, you know, accommodation better for people, not, you know, just doing exactly the opposite of what right. the Fed wants it, it, to do. It's diluting the Fed's efforts, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, this is going to make the Fed have to be more aggressive. So, you know, there's, and, and this is going to be a real challenge here, because again, as we said earlier, is that, you know, with that, with that lag to monetary policy, you know, it almost seems like investors are kind of running down this hallway going, hey, you know what, there's, there's no end to this hallway, I'm really good, and then somebody slams the door, right? <laughs> so, you know, that's going to be the real risk here is that at some point, that kind of collision of tighter monetary policy and market reality is going to catch up with each other. And, I, you know, you just don't know where that's going to be. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just going to return my analogy from last week to make sure folks really get the get the weight of what you're saying there, which is um, because there's a delay, um, the Fed may get to the breaking point and and change policy, but we may still net tighten for a long time after that. Um, and the analogy I was using was let's say there's a guy, let's call him Lance, uh, who's walking and you think he's walking too fast. So you want to slow him down. So Lance is our avatar for the economy. So you as the Federal Reserve tell one of your runners to go take this 25 pound weight and go put it on, you know, in Lance's backpack. Right. And uh, and so he does that. And Lance starts walking a little slower, but he's still walking faster than you want him to. So you send off another 25 pound plate. Right. So you keep doing that. And at some point, Lance stumbles under the weight and he's he's done you've you've kept him from moving but you've sent out so many runners that they keep arriving and putting additional plates on his back and he just keeps getting crushed and crushed and crushed under this even if you changed your mind you want him to get going you still have several runners still putting weights on this guy so um that's the that that obviously is the big danger when yeah. you talk about the policy mistake right that that's likely going to be made here um so real quick before we get to your your trades for the week um uh you mentioned a couple indicators, you know, bond spreads. Are, are there any particular bond spreads that you look at closely to to see, you know, trouble brewing? And also, um, would we expect to, the repo market to also be an early indicator here? That is, these companies are getting yeah. into trouble. They're 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 begging, you know, the Fed for help in overnight lending to just meet tomorrow's, you know, debt payments. Yeah. So a couple of, so yeah, the repo market is worth watching again, you know, we didn't see a lot of activity in the repo market prior to 2019. And then it became all of a sudden, everybody was like paying attention to the repo market. Cause you know, we, we, you know, basically what was happening is, is that uh, kind of a, a, just a layman's explanation of the repo market is, is pretty much um, the fed loans money to banks overnight. And so Adams, the fed, and I pull up in, in Adam's driveway with a brand new Mercedes AMG fully paid for. And I hand Adam the keys and say, Adam, I need to borrow $10,000 overnight. You get to keep my car as collateral. And Adam says, nah, it's not enough. I need two of them. And, you know, and that's what was happening is that people were putting up guaranteed collateral, treasury bonds as collateral. And the Fed was charging them 8 9% for overnight money. And that was telling you that there was stress in that credit market and somebody was getting bailed out. And we found out later it was, you know, hedge funds getting Citadel and others getting bailed out. Um, so that repo market has now become an indicator worth watching because that's telling you that something, somebody somewhere is blowing up and they need help. And, you know, again, we go back to this whole basis is that, you know, at the end of the day, the one thing the Fed's not going to tolerate is financial instability because it will run through the markets like a virus. You know, you think COVID was bad. You know, you get financial instability in one area of the financial market. Everybody is so linked and leveraged now, not just domestically, but globally, that it just it will run like a wildfire through the yeah, it's a domino and effect. It's, yeah. And it's and it is very fast. So that's the one thing the Fed will not tolerate under any circumstance. And that's where immediately policy will reverse. Uh, rates will drop back to zero. Q, QT becomes QE. And it'll happen almost overnight and you won't know why at first and then you'll figure it out later. Um, but 
you know, importantly, as, as we're watching that, so, you know, what credit spreads are we watching, right? So just like we watch all different types of, of the yield curve, right? So we have 10 different, 10 different yield curves that we are yield spreads that we look at on, on for tracking the yield curve. Do the same thing in the, in, in the credit market. So we look at, you know, B-rated bonds, which are junk to, you know, triple C rated bonds, which are super junk, right? <laughs> you watch. So um, we're watching spreads on, on the junk, you have junk. And then we watch the spreads between investment grade and junk bonds. And then we look at uh, the spread between treasuries and investment grade, spread between treasuries and junk, you know, kind of minor junk bonds, the, the B rated bonds, uh, the spread between investment grade and treasuries versus, you know, the, the super junky stuff, right? Triple C's. So you kind of watch these kind of these various yield spreads, and then you kind of get a little bit better picture about what's happening across credit markets. And that's then that's the goal. That's why we track, you know, when we're talking about yield curves, everybody look, you know, everybody watches the 10 and the two, and they say, well, that yield curve is inverted. That's only one of the yield curves, and those can invert and really not tell you a whole lot. But when you start getting five of 10 different yield spreads inverting, that tells you a much better picture about what's happening across the credit market in general. So, you know, and again, we go back and, and, and yes, yield spreads have come up on a variety of these issues, but they're not to the point yet that it's screaming there's a problem. And, and when you're going to know this in particular is you're going to see one thing occur and you'll start to see yields on triple B, triple C, B rated bonds, you know, um, single A, triple B plus, you know, double Bs, those, those yields will all start rising sharply. The 10-year treasury rate will start going straight down. And when you start seeing that divergence between the 10-year treasury rate and these other yields, that will tell you that'll be one of your best indicators that you have now just run into a credit problem that's probably linked to a recession that hasn't been announced yet. And money is fleeing out of these corporate structures into treasuries for safety. Okay. All right. Um, I know you guys will be watching that closely. And as you begin to see, you know, early warnings of that, yeah. we'll definitely discuss it on this program here. It's yeah, kind of we'll like, you, we'll, tell, we'll tell you after the fact. Yeah. Like, like the, like, like, like the NBR. Um, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, I mean, I, I kind of hesitated there because I, I, I think you and I expect we're going to see that. And I don't want to make it sound like we're hoping to see that stuff, but I think we expect to. And so when we do, obviously, we'll let people know here because we want to provide as much early warning for folks as possible when yes. this looks like it's going down. Real quick, that's that's, that's a great point. You know, and, and look, you know, I, I, everybody needs to understand is that just because we're talking about these things, you know, I, nobody hopes for a recession, right? No, I don't hope to, that people lose their jobs. I don't hope that people, you know, lose their houses. And, you know, that's, you know, that's not what we're in the business of doing, right? And, and you know, our business is to, to make people money and, and to, to build wealth for people. And, you know, watching people get destroyed is not what we're hoping for. What we're trying to, to what we're talking about and the things we're worried about and this goes back to the basis of money management, right? Risk management, money management, which is, you know, if I'm driving down the freeway with my foot pressed on the gas pedal, right? And, and as long as I can see clearly ahead of me, you know, that's okay, right? What I've got to be careful of is that, you know, all of a sudden the cow runs out across the freeway or there's a sudden sharp right-hand turn that I'm not aware of, or there's a road hazard that happens or I have a blowout. 
it's those unexpected events that cause a catastrophic accident. And that's, and the reason that we watch these different things is we're not trying to be bearish. And, and again, you know, our whole logo thing is an eagle because we're, you know, we're, we're not bullish, we're not bearish. We're just trying to pay attention to what's going on in the markets. But the reason we pay more attention to the bearish stuff is because that's what takes your money away. You know, if, if we just all be bullish all the time, markets just went up, a, you wouldn't need me, and, and B, we'd all just be rich. But obviously, as we said before, if 80% of the people that can't come up with $500 or something seriously wrong with the whole idea that markets just go up over time and it's all good, fine and dandy, and there's no risk to investing. Uh, investing is the very definition of risk. And if that is the issue, then we have to be paying out the most attention to the things that will take away our capital the quickest. Right, right. And, and just to put a fine point on it, uh, nobody roots for a hurricane to come and slam into wherever they live. But if one is going to, boy, you sure hope that the meteorologists are going to give you as much advance warning as possible, right? right. So, all right. Um, okay, so a few more questions for you here, a few more topics. Um, we're beginning to get a little pinched on time. But uh, what trades have you made over the past week, if any? So we, we touched on these earlier in the show. Um, so the one thing that we did on Wednesday was we added a long Euro position. So we were just using an ETF called FXE right now, which is the Euro Currency Trust. Um, so we, we took on a position in that, and that's, that's simply a hedge against the dollar. The dollar has been extremely strong here. It's a very overbought, it's very extended. And so we should have a fairly decent corrective action in the dollar. Uh, that should also coincide with a rally in asset prices as well and lower bond yields. So what we did is we actually took our bond model back up to model weight. We've been underweight our, our, long, dura our long duration treasuries. We took those back to model weight in the portfolios. So we added a little bit to our long duration bonds and we added this position, this kind of starter trade position in FXE. Um, on the euro as a hedge against a dollar decline. And so that's we're, we're playing that trade right now. And, and if our thesis comes true, then we'll probably add to that FXE position over the next few days. Okay. So presuming the dollar actually does continue to weaken from here, you would expect that FXE position to do well, obviously, the bond position to do well, obviously, and whatever longs you have in the portfolio would right. probably likely be positively correlated with that too, right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Um, I assume you still are maintaining a higher than normal cash position, just given your caution about the market. Yeah. Yeah. No, we haven't really changed that at all. Um, you know, where we used a little bit of our cash, you know, for FXE, um, two percent, and so it wasn't a lot. And you know, we'd added to our energy exposure just recently on this dip. So, um, if we do get a weaker dollar, that should bode well for energy companies as well. And you know, with what's going on in Europe, you know, it's it's going to be interesting to watch. You know. Um, you know, the, the replacement for Boris Johnson uh, trust, she trust. just talked, yeah, Liz Trust, she just talked about, you know, basically repealing the fracking ban and getting oil companies back to work drilling for oil. And there was a really great uh, tweet out earlier this week. I, I wish I could remember uh, a friend of mine sent it to me. I wish I could find it, but uh, talking about these rolling power outages out in California and the oil and gas industry kind of trade group sent a tweet back that said, don't you wish you get a five gallon, a five gallon bucket of energy? And, you know, just, you know, the, the point is, is that there is going to be a demand for energy and it's going to be a question of just when and how much. So, you know, that's kind of, we're still kind of long on energy exposure as we get into winter, as things start to get colder and the demand for energy goes up. Okay. 
All right. Um, look, uh, I've got a few things I'm going to try to squeeze in here. Let's do our okay. best. Rapid fire. Um, yeah, rapid fire. <laughs> um, so in a recent piece, you sort of talked about, it was your piece about the recession and you ended yeah. it with a couple of, of bits of advice of things people should consider. And one of the things you talked about was tax loss harvesting. Yeah. Um, and maybe that deserves a larger discussion, but if you could just sort of briefly explain for folks, um, you know, why you're recommending that right now and what, what the benefits of tax loss harvesting can be. Well, you know, so first of all, there's, you know, there's, there's one basic rule. And it's always interesting to me about this too. When, when I talk to people about investing, there's a basic rule of investing that every, it doesn't matter who you talk to, Warren Buffett or, you know, Paul Tudor Jones or, you know, any, any great trader in history, they all have one rule in common. They may not say it the same way, but they all have one rule in common, which is sell your losers, let your winners run. And in some form or fashion, they have that, right? And, and that's just basic money management, right? You just, you, you, you let things that are working work for you. And, and uh, you know, there, I, I just have a, have a health and had a health and fitness coach for a long time. And one of his things he always said to me, he says, he says, look, if you want to be in better shape and if you want to be healthier, do less of what doesn't work and do more <laughs> of what does. And, you know, and it's such a great saying because it applies to money management as well. You know, if, if something's not working in your portfolio, sell it, move on. And, and yet this is the exact thing that people don't do. And, and what, they, what they wind up doing is they go, well, I remember this in 2000 as a good example, Lucent, Enron, you remember all those companies back then, if you were around WorldCom, Global Crossing, there's a whole litany of these companies. And so they all became losers pretty much at the same time. And people said, well, you know what I'll do? I'll, when those come back, right. I'll sell them and then I'll buy something else. Well, a lot of those companies, A, never came back. And if they did come back, it was two decades later <laughs> before they actually got back even, if they still existed. And so what happens is, is people wind up with a whole portfolio of stuff they were just hoping to have come back. So you have, you have this complete portfolio of dead stuff and you've got nothing growing. And this is an opportunity cost. And so when you talk about tax loss harvesting, what we're doing, talking about is saying, look, sell these losers and we can use those losses to offset our gains later on by putting that capital to work somewhere else. And, and, and right. so it's, I, it's hard to interrupt, but there's really right. two benefits you're talking about there, yes, right? You're yes. talking about, a, I'm getting rid of an underperformer and I can hopefully put it into something that's going to perform better. And then I can take those tax losses to protect the gains of right. the better performance I may get. Yeah, I'm about to, and I'm about to say something that's going to upset a lot of people. So this is why you don't trade stocks in an IRA or a Roth. And it's right. because you lose you a tax benefit. You, yeah. you can't, uh, you just sell losers and, you, and you've locked in losses. Um, you know, if I had my way with my clients, I would say, look, in your IRA, you only put in stuff that has a guaranteed rate of return. So you buy bonds with an interest coupon. That's what goes in your Roth. That's what goes in your, you know, your, your IRA. And wherever you're going to speculate in the markets, you do that in a taxable account. Because that way, when you're investing in stocks, you have losses, you can offset those on taxes, you get those tax benefits, et cetera. Um, you know, but we all want to try to defer our taxes as much as possible. And that, and that doesn't always work out as well as anticipated, because especially in an IRA where you lock in a lot of losses, you know, during a bear market, you just have to try to earn those back and you don't get a tax deduction for them. You don't get to write off those losses on some future basis. 
they're just there. You just destroyed capital. So, you know, having everything locked up in an IRA sounds great in theory because, hey, I'm not paying taxes today, but you wind up actually paying more taxes in a lot of cases through losses. Okay. All right. So in, in a year where so much wealth has been lost, you know, the figures I cited 20 minutes or so ago, um, that uh, this is probably a good moment for people that have had underperformers in their portfolios to look back at perhaps with the uh, under the tutelage or, or the support of a good financial gu uh, guide like like your firm uh, and to go through and just say, hey, is this is each one of these worth keeping or not? And if not, you kind of Marie Kondo wise your portfolio, right? You get rid of the stuff that's not bringing you joy, <laughs> uh, figure out what to do with that capital. And then you have those tax losses to use to offset future gains. Yeah. And look, I just wrote about this. Uh, so, you know, we publish a daily commentary on our website every day and um, you can get it by email every morning. If you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, there's a link to subscribe to our daily market commentary. And we deliver it every morning at 730. And every day we have a market trading update. We just talk about what the market did yesterday, what we expected to do today and why, what's going on technically. Just a little short blurb, takes you three minutes to read the whole thing. Um, the, the, but what I've been talking about in the last couple of weeks is this rally, use this rally to rebalance risk. And, and the reason is a lot of people have gotten caught up into this market. They've got a lot of losses. They don't know what to do with them. They're kind of paralyzed and just kind of hoping the market's going to come back here at some point. And look, if, if, if this is you, right, if you're not sleeping at night because your portfolio is, you know, upside down, not performing, not doing what you want to do. You've got lots of losses. You know, you're, you're getting, you know, an, an ulcer from this type of thing. You know, if it's stressing you out, it means you have too much risk in your portfolio, right? So use this rally and look, and it's okay. Look, you know, people tell you is like, you know, look, we're, we're at 35% cash right now in our portfolio. We're not zero. We've got some reasons for that, but that doesn't matter. If this market is really just eating you up psychologically, it's okay. Just sell everything. Go to cash, step back, take a breather for a couple of weeks, repos you know, reposition yourself, kind of, and, and, and really think about what it is you're trying to achieve. You know, we got all wrapped up in the bullish ramp. You know, when markets were going up, people were buying bankrupt companies, Hertz, American Airlines, you know, et cetera, you know, hoping these things were going to go the AMC, GameStop, Bed Bath and Beyond, right? All, you know, you know, all these stocks. So we all get ramped up in that. It's like, oh, we're going to make so much money. It's going to be great. But you totally forgot what your goal was. You know, if your goal was just to grow your money at three or 4% a year and, and build yourself into a retirement plan that you could sustain through retirement, you're totally off that goal now. Sell everything. It's okay, right? It's okay to sell stuff. If you sell stuff at a loss, it doesn't mean you're a loser. No, nobody's going to go, man, Adam, you're such a loser. I can't believe you bought that stock. Nobody cares about your portfolio but you. And it doesn't make you a loser. It just means that you made a mistake. It's okay. Step back. Think about what it is you're trying to do. And then build a portfolio to achieve those goals. That's, you know, and, you know, we did this whole financial planning seminar a couple of weeks ago, you know, here with Adam. And that's the whole premise for the financial plan. We don't do financial planning just for the sake of doing financial planning. The whole purpose of that plan is it's like a blueprint for building a house. And what that plan says is this is how much return you need to meet your goals. And then we take that plan and then we build a portfolio to generate that rate of return. And, and if that's not what you're doing, if you don't have some correlation between the blueprint and your house, sell everything, start over and do it the right way, right? And, and, I, and I guarantee you, you're gonna sleep better at night. It's not gonna be nearly as fun and exhilarating, right? Cause you're not gonna have these stocks that go up 50% overnight, but 
your portfolio will start to grow again. And that's the whole purpose of, of what you're trying to do to start with. All right. Great, great answer. And folks, if you did not watch that retirement planning webinar that Lance just mentioned, you can watch it now for free over at wealthion.com slash retirement planning. And the feedback that we got from that, Lance, we talked about this last week, um, yeah. extremely strong. Folks want us to do more of these on other topics. We will do more of them in the future, folks. Um, but if you haven't seen this first one, definitely go to that URL that I just mentioned. Um, all right, Lance. So in in the little bit of time we have left, i um, going to try to squeeze a rant in, maybe yeah. even something a little bit positive too. Um, and, and we were sort of touching on this earlier where um, uh, you know, you were saying that in a lot of cases, our leaders don't tell us the truth. They don't give us the warnings about the important things like a recession is coming. And we talked a little bit about this last week where some other central bank leaders in other countries are actually doing this, but the Fed isn't. And the reason why the Fed isn't is because it's it's the big influencer. And what it doesn't want to do is shape consumer behavior to start preparing for a recession, which, you know, decreases the economy so fast that we actually create the recession in itself, right? Um, but but I think that that's, it's not forgivable by any stretch, but it's probably one of the more forgivable ills. I, I'm, the, the Queen of England just passed away. And, you know, whatever your opinion is on, on the monarchy, the British monarchy and its legacy over history, um, I think we can all pretty much agree that, that she was a, a cut above in terms of how she comported herself over her life than pretty much every political leader today. Um, you know, she yeah. uh, was not only, you know, very dignified and, and, and gracious, um, but she helped her country deal with and find its way through severe adversity at multiple stages in her life. And when she was younger, you know, she was down there in the underground uh, tunnels, um, you know, the subway tunnels, helping people um, basically stay alive during the Blitz when, you know, the, the London was being bombed and whatnot. And she was basically, you know, saying, yeah, these are tough times. We all have to pull together. We all have to sacrifice here, but we're doing it for a greater good. And I'm right here with you suffering through this, right? And um, I think we have leaders today who, A, just are allergic to, to even talking about anything that sort of smacks of any sort of shared austerity for a bigger goal. Um, uh, they are, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're much more likely just to tell people whatever they want to hear and dole out bailouts and goodies and stimulus checks, et cetera, which oftentimes are just, you know, kicking the can in a way that are going to make the reckoning even bigger when it arrives here. Um, and, you know, I, I sort of mark the passing of Queen Elizabeth here as, you know, the, definitely the end of an age, but the end of, of you know, a kind of leader that that I'm not sure we're, we're going to see again anytime soon. I mean, these are desperately the leaders we need right now for the, the type of environment we're heading into. I, I'll say one last thing, and then I'll let you join this rant. Um, there's a... Uh, there's a meme, I'll try to find it and put it up here, um, but uh, it's, if I remember correctly, it's hard times create good men, good men create good times, good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. And it does seem that we may be in that latter category mm -hmm. here where we've got, you know, weak leaders, um, honestly, a society that is not used to sacrificing um and and doesn't seem to have a lot of interest or tolerance for it 
Um, and we very well may be going into hard times um, that maybe we deserve, given our current culture and leadership. Um, not happy about it, but it just seems to be where we are. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, it, it's right. You know, it, and I've, I've talked about this before in our radio show, which is I'm going to run for president. And here's my platform. My platform is, is that we've got a lot of problems and we need to resolve our debt issues, our deficits, and we need to get, you know, you know, capitalism back on track to where it it works for the benefit of everyone. And, and so in order to do that, it's going to require, as you said, shared sacrifice. But my platform is, is that I'm going to start with the government first. So first thing we're going to do is we're going to start eliminating, you know, slash and burn through the government. We're going to turn a lot of stuff back to the states, Department of Education, Department of Energy, you know, all these things. Uh, they're all going back to the states and, and the states will have to deal with those issues on their own. The government is responsible for two things, according to the Constitution, which is infrastructure and national defense. Outside of that, everything else belongs to the states. And so we're going to slash and burn government. We're going to say we're going to reduce the four to five trillion we're spending every year in government. We're going to reduce that down to a trillion dollars to, to just run the national defense and infrastructure of the economy. That's our job. Don't ask us for anything else. Everything else is on you and your state. Now, once I do that, and mind you, that is not going to help everything, and we're not going to get Social Security funded. We're not going to get that straightened out right away. We're going to have to start. Now, I'm going to come back to you. After I do my job in government, I'm going to come to you, you who voted for me, and I'm going to ask you to share in the sacrifice. And we're going to talk about restructuring Social Security, Medicare, pension. That's a $96 trillion unfunded liability that is going to devastate future generations that have to pay into a system from which they will see nothing out of it, right? And so this is going to be something we have to work on together. I know that a lot of you contributed to Social Security and you're all depending on it for retirement, but you know we've got to just be realistic about the situation we got ourselves into since 1960. We've been putting on all kinds of people into Social Security that don't pay into it, and we're paying out of a system that is effectively functionally broken. So we've got to get that back to what it's meant to be originally, which is a welfare system for retirees who have paid in for it over time. And we today we have two workers paying in for every worker taking out versus 16 back in 1940. That just doesn't that math just doesn't work. So we got to fix this problem. And then I'm going to and I'm going to call on you to to start working on the the you know, the growth of the economy. We've got to get back to work. We've got to focus on manufacturing. We've got to focus on rebuilding our country from the inside out. Now, that's going to require more shared sacrifice, right? Because we have to compete on a worldwide basis in terms of labor and capital cost. And that means that we've got to sacrifice here in order to do that. But if we do this in five years, we'll have this country back on track and we'll then this, this massive economic engine of growth will be back to functioning properly because we'll reduce a lot of our debts and our deficits. We'll have everything back on an even kill and everybody will be producing and manufacturing our own. Now, if you like this idea, vote for me for president. I guarantee you, Adam, I won't get one vote. And the reason <laughs> is that nobody wants to share sacrifice. Right. And, and leadership is no longer leadership. Leadership has now become a function of getting votes. And the only way to get votes in today's economy is to promise people free money with no consequence. But if the 2020 pandemic didn't teach you anything, it should have taught you one thing. Free money is not free. Yeah, I think the operative word in that statement, sadly, is should. Uh, it's what it should have taught us. I'm not sure how many people have learned that lesson yet. I'm honestly still not even sure how many people connect the inflation that we've been dealing with 
to the government's uh, well, quote unquote rescue efforts. Well, look, I guarantee the politicians haven't because this, you know, we're already talking about several states giving out more bennies now to help with electric bills, uh, Pennsylvania, Alaska, others, California. Uh, now we've got entire governments, uh, you know, now you're talking about the Eurozone, talking about a complete bailout of their system over there, suspending derivatives markets, bailouts of margin loans um, to the tune of a trillion dollars, trillion euros, sorry. Um, you know, you know, you're doing exactly what caused the problem to start with, and now you're just going to throw gasoline on the fire. So apparently nobody's learning the lesson. All right. I, I hate to end it at such a sort of negative sentiment right. here. One good thing. Markets are going up. We have a nice positive week in the markets. Should get to follow <laughs> through next week because we're not we're not back to overbought yet. So we were oversold. Rally was expected. Wouldn't be surprised to see this continue until a little bit of next week, a little bit of positive momentum. We're above the 50 and the 100-day moving average. So gives us a shot now to about 41.50, 42.50 on the S&P. So there's a little bit of upside here to, to make some money with, but use this rally to rebalance risk, raise a little bit of cash, get rid of losers, you know, let your winners do their job, uh, but clean up your portfolio a bit here. All right. Well, and with that great advice, folks, just a couple of quick reminders of free resources. Uh, one, obviously, given everything we talked about here, uh, it's a rough time for individual investors to navigate this type of market. So we highly recommend that you work with a professional financial advisor that understands all of the macro issues and risks that we've talked about here. If you've got a good one, great. Stick with them. If you don't or you'd like a second opinion of one who does, perhaps even Lance and the guys at his firm, uh, just go to Wealthion.com to set up a free, no commitment, no strings attached consultation. These guys will literally just sit down with you. They'll learn about your personal financial situation. They'll tell you what they think you should do in your best interests. And you can do that yourself. You can do it with your existing uh, advisor, or you can talk to these guys about you know potentially further uh, exploring things with them. Uh, also, just a quick reminder, we are a week, uh, we're two weeks away now from Wealthion's uh, upcoming fall seminar. Uh, you've heard me talk about the lineup, uh, just incredibly action-packed, guys like Lacey Hunt, um, uh, Lynn Alden, uh, uh, Matt Taibbi, Grant Williams, Stephanie Pomboy, Alf Pecatiello, Rick Rule, a whole bunch of others. Um, but uh, we, if you if you missed the early bird price discount, I was encouraging everybody to get. Uh, it's not too late. We have a last chance to save price discount of 15%. Uh, that remains for the next week. Uh, so don't wait a week, though. Go get it now. Um, if you want to learn more about the conference and register to claim that discount before it goes up to full price, just go to wealthion.com slash conference and do that right after this video ends. Um, all right. And if you enjoy these weekly recaps, um, even a quarter as much as Lance and I do every week, please do me a favor and support this channel <laughs> by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Well, that's my friend. Thanks for another great week. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.